Welcome to Shakespeare and Pal, episode 23, A Midsummer Night's Dream. This is Shakespeare and Pals, where we go through Shakespeare's works in chronological order, as well as his influences and influencees. But this time, back to Shakespeare and, thankfully, back to one of his big ones, A Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm Michael. And I'm Sophie. And we usually go around to ask the members of the panel what our relationship with this play is. And more than in most previous ones, Sophie, I think that maybe there is a greater than 0% chance that you do have a relationship with A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oddly enough, I do. Um, I've actually played in a scene uh, at school. Um, I believe I was Mustard Seed. Oh. You were Peace Blossom. Uh, no, I think that was someone, that, I think that was given to someone shorter than me. Oh. So, so they were, ah, uh, so you were already typecast based on your body type. It's the patriarchy at work. It was an all-girls school in, in, the, in the patriarchy's defense, so I'm not sure. Also, mustard seeds are very small. Um, what are the other two? Cobweb and... I can't remember the other one, but it's fine. Uh, I think, I think, yeah, all I remember is that we were in height order and I was in introductions and I was one of either the third one or the fourth one. And I'm pretty sure Mustard Seed was somewhere along there. Can you remember anything, anything at all from that experience other than that you were playing a fairy and your casting, your, your billing number was determined by your abnormally humongous height? Um, well, the, uh, so I was in the drama, um, class because I had to be, or, um, I was in year 13 or 12, it was probably year 13, um, and my schedule was really tight, um, so the only, I had to, like, take another class, and the only class that could fit um into my weird schedule was drama so I took it um it was the easiest drama class I'd ever done um and the we were I can't the only thing I remember about my costume was that uh it was black sheer material and it was stretchy and um the the drama drama teacher had made a prototype um and one of the girls who was interested in fashion was like no you can't why did you sew it like that it, it won't it won't stretch in such a way that people can fit it um and they were like well it'll it'll fit sophie surely um and it did fit it was tight um and it was very uncomfortable and uh we decided the fairies were like kind of like half cute half um military types so on top of the cute fairy dress uh well under the cute fairy dress we were all wearing like combat boots and uh we marched in did a little cute um uh, curtsy uh then the girl that was doing um 
the queen said, okay, take him away. And we frog marched him out like a military prisoner. And that, that was the joke. Um, yeah, that was the joke. <laughs> yes, so this is far more of a connection than I thought you would have to this play. I did not expect to hear that you, as a... Uh, there are so many carry-on jokes that I am avoiding making. Aren't you happy for me, Sophie? I, I do appreciate it. My relationship to this play? Far less, Sophie. I never had to study it in school. My first exposure to the language of this play was the spectacular Spider-Man TV show where the Green Goblin for some reason starts quoting it while there's a prison break. I can't remember the rest of that episode or why he starts quoting Puck, but that is my only deep connection to this play. I mean, I've read it other times, but much shallower relationship than you, Sophie. Oh, that's... Yeah, no, that's a really weird connection to have, not gonna lie. Um, did the Green Goblin maybe instigate a prison break? Yes. <laughs> he, like that's, yeah. It goes even further because it, it's always cutting between him doing lines from A Midsummer Night's Dream, and then it cuts back to a high school production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. I can't remember if the... Yeah, intertextuality was done in a generative way, or if it's just a writer of a children's show saying, no, no, look, I've read literature, I'm doing literary things here, mother. Oh, oh my god. That's, that's very funny. I'm really tempted to Google it now, but, but I won't, I won't. Because I would like to live this. I would like to keep it in my imagination. I would like it to be a fever dream. As is this play. Oh, yes. Uh, I'd like to read some early reviews. Some two early reviews of A Midsummer Night's Dream. One is by Samuel Pepys. Samuel Pepys from his journal. He's the famous diarist who wrote a lot of things, writing a lot of catty remarks about the theatre shows he went to see. And this is him in the 1660s saying, And then to the King's Theatre, where we saw A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I had never seen before, nor shall ever again, for it is the most insipid, ridiculous play that ever I saw in my life. I saw, I confess, some good dancing and some handsome women, uh, which was all my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will agree with his sentiment. I won't, is it insipid? I don't know. But you know what? Handsome women do usually save a play or two, don't they? Especially when they're doing some good dancing in their skin tight tights. Lovely. <laughs> 10 out of 10. To give the other side of this, let's go to William Warburton in 1747 saying, These two first plays, The Tempest and The Midsummer Night's Dream, are the noblest efforts of that sublime and amazing imagination peculiar to Shakespeare, which soars above the bounds of nature without forsaking sense, or, more properly, 
carries nature along with him beyond her established limits. I, I hear your silence as a thunderous hair, hair, hair. I mean, um, I'm definitely nodding. The thing is, uh, spoiler alert, I don't like this play much. So, um, no, okay, I, Simon already knows that I don't like this play. Sorry, Michael. Uh, Michael doesn't know that I... Eh? I'm losing my mind. Um, Michael does, in fact, know that I don't like this play. Um, so the spoiler alert is to our listeners that we definitely have. Um, and... Uh, I'll probably yeah. start advertising this podcast for this episode. Yeah, and... Um, I agree, like, I, again, I agree with the content of the, in, so for this review, I agree with the content of the review, but I don't agree with the sentiment of the review. That it's, you agree that it takes nature beyond her natural bounds, but you don't care. Yeah, pretty much. One <laughs> last review by a James Barclay in 1766. None of the most boasted compositions of learned antiquity afford a more noble scope for liberal criticism than the exquisite performance we are now entering upon. Through the medium of it, we may contemplate the unbounded imagination of our wonderful bard, which could carry him beyond the limits of the natural world into regions to which the poetry of Homer and Virgil was an absolute stranger. And experience has shown, by the bad success of imitators, that he alone could wave the powerful rod or walk within the magic circle. So, uh, Sophie, even if you don't like this, perhaps you'll agree with him that his imitators are worse. Yeah, probably. I mean, I haven't seen any of the imitators yet, so it's kind of hard to tell, but... Um... Well, you're going to watch that Spider-Man episode. That's an imitator. Oh, no. Am I, am I going to see that Spider-Man episode? I don't know that yet, but... Oof. Yeah, no. Because um, um, theories before Shakespeare, at least, um, were, you know, kind of the bad ones, and then theories now became like a cute thing where, you know, flowers for hats, and then they go everywhere being nice to people instead of taking their children um, in their cribs and leaving changelings behind. Um, so, yeah, no, Shakespeare did start a trend of nice, respectable fairies. Act one. Hippolyta. Queen of the Amazons is a war bride to Theseus, the hero of Athens. Theseus has just gotten back from war with the Amazons, but Aegeus has to bother Theseus about family matters. See, Aegeus's daughter, Hermia, is in love with Lysander, but Aegeus wants his daughter, Hermia, to marry another young man, Demetrius. Demetrius, who was previously in love with Hermia's childhood friend, Helena. I know that name ends with the same first two letters and the same last letter as Hermia, but remember, Hermia is different from Helena. Keep these separate in your heads. This is a farce. It's meant to be a bit complicated. By Athens' law, 
If Hermia doesn't marry who her father tells her to, she will be executed or locked up in a nunnery. To avoid this, Lysander and Hermia elope together. Separately, an amateur theatre troupe of tradies is getting together a play for Hippolyta and Theseus's wedding. Did I miss anything? Nope. <laughs> nope. Any initial thoughts, Sophie? Do you, do you disagree with me calling Hippolyta a war bride? I mean... To be honest, I missed that subtext. Um, this is because I, I must confess that I've re-listened to Midsummer Night's Dream a lot, but I actually haven't sat down and looked at a text and made notes on it. So I might have missed that subtext because I didn't, you know, read the play. But... Um... When you say subtext, let me read out a line. Hippolyta. I wooed thee with my sword, and won thy love doing thee injuries. But I will wed thee in another key, with pomp, with triumph, and with reveling. Okay, I thought that was just innuendo. It's still innuendo, but uh, far darker than you supposed. Yeah, okay, no, I don't like that at all. Um, and everyone seemed so cheerful that it seemed like... Oh, Woolbride? Uh... Okay. It depends on which version you see. I remember seeing a National Theatre one. And in this one, they sort of themed the opening bit a bit like The Handmaid's Tale, where Hippolyta is brought up in a glass prison cage dressed like a, an off-brand handmaid from The Handmaid's Tale, looking down. And it really does... How you view what's happening here depends on how you read her lines. I, we watched recently a 1960s version of it where well it begins with theseus saying now fair hippolyta our nuptial hour draws on apace four happy days bring in another moon but oh methinks how slow this old moon wanes she lingers my desires like to a stepdame or a dowager long withering out her young man's revenue and then hippolyta says some words, and these are her only words, really, for the entirety of this scene. For the rest of this scene, she is standing in the background while the rest of the plot happens. And her next lines can be done either with a level of contempt or a level of lovingness. So she says, four days will quickly steep themselves in night, for nights will quickly dream away the time. And then the moon, like to a silver bow, new bent in heaven, shall behold the night of our solemnities. In the version we watched, which was a 1960s one, she reads this with a very sort of uh, loving and eager way, like, oh, four days will quickly steep themselves in night. So she's saying, oh, yes, hopefully the you are unhappy that's taking so long, but time will pass and we will get married. You can read this slightly more angrily because the metaphor she uses is four, four days will quickly steep themselves in night four nights will quickly dream away the time and then the moon like to a silver bow okay so already this is putting in our minds that the moon is diana diana is not just a virgin goddess 
but also a hunter goddess who is not afraid to kill men who violate her chastity. So like to a silver bow, new bent in heaven, shall behold a night of our solemnities. So we have here an image of Diana, the huntress goddess, holding up a bow, pointing at Theseus on his wedding bed, a man who has taken this woman, Hippolyta, as a war bride. So she can say it with a level of contempt and snarling. Yeah, um, for me, I took it as Cupid's bow, because, um, yeah, no, uh, the the way the audiobook um, presented it, it was very, you know, it wasn't contemptuous. It was just, yeah, it'll be over soon. Um, and um, it'll be, it'll show up very quickly. So, yeah, no, I definitely did not see it as, yeah, as the, as the bad way, which is, um, yeah, a choice. I should pull back a bit on my reading because, you know, even if she is meant to be against this, by the tone of the play, it might not be a, oh, I am a literal war bride who we should view as being taken prisoner by this man. Well, even though, if, even if that is what is literally happening in the plot, we can take this as a sort of an exaggerated world where we don't take everything so seriously, where even if she is a war bride, it's in a sort of fairy tale world where that isn't that bad, just like later on in the play where we hear that the fairies have taken an Indian prince. Now, that's technically kidnapped, but we're not meant to view it that way. It's yeah. meant to be a bit sort of uh, in a land of make-believe where this is just sort of a sort of bad thing to do. I mean, it could entirely be, um, you know, an enemies-to-lovers situation. Where... I will go back to that argument later on in the play. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yes. I'm not telling you to stop. I'm just <laughs> saying that that is something I noticed. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, um, I feel like uh, Booktube would agree with me in that, um, you know, like enemies to lovers is A, hot, and B, just imagining Hippolyta and, and this duke staring into each other's eyes as one is kneeling down in the in the blood-soaked dirt as the other tilts their face up with the tip of a sword going so we meet again and it's like mm, saying i wound thee with my sword that is there's some hot shit right there i should okay god trying not to swear is so hard but that is some hot stuff right there how about that but you how got yourself that? so worked up sophie <sighs> Okay, you know, just like romances that involve like fighting and going, yeah, there's a constant in my life through this war and carnage. And also that other person is a hot person that I might be falling in love with, even that's a very dangerous thing to do, is just top tier good stuff. I'm seeing a new side of you, Sophie. <laughs> But to turn to another kind of unhealthy, romantic thing, shall we go on to the main crux of this plot, which is Aegeus saying to Hermia, you better marry Demetrius, otherwise I'll have you killed. Yeah, no, um, maybe like Shakespearean dads should calm down. 
just calm down a little bit. For, for you know, the purposes of writing like a feel-good comedy, it's a, ironically the way to make this a feel-good comedy is you need to make the father an absolute monster. Because yeah. you want this to be morally uncomplicated. You know, maybe some dads in the audience would think, oh, I should have a say in how my daughter gets married. But then we have a GSA, I want my daughter killed. And so even those dads say, oh, no, no, uh, the, the, the two kids are right. Yeah, the two kids are right. This is fine. And they make him especially bad because he says, under Athens law, if my daughter disagrees with who I tell her to marry, she will be put to death or I'll force her to join a nunnery. Her father only mentions the death part. He doesn't mention the part where she stays alive. She says, well, look, if you don't marry, if I tell you to marry, I'm going to kill you. It's Theseus who has to come in and say, oh, no, you can die or you can stay chaste. It's just like, what is... Why? And it's fine. It's just the kind of play that this is. Um, to be honest, I think part of me is like, did just Shakespeare want to make more moon references? Because, um, well, like Theseus, um, yeah, uh, when Hermia is like, hey, um, in case in case I'm I'm getting you know the right message here what would actually happen to me if I do uh, refuse to wed Demetrius? And Theseus replies, either to die the death or to abjure forever the society of men. Therefore, fair Hermia, question your desires, know of your youth, examine well your blood, whether if you yield not to your father's choice, you can endure the livery of a nun, for I to be in shady cloister mood, to live a barren sister all your life, chanting faint hymns to the cold fruitless moon. Thrice blessed they that master sow their blood to undergo such maiden pilgrimage but earthlier happy is the rose distilled than that which withering on the virgin thorn grows lives and dies in single blessedness um and then theseus again time take time to pause and buy the nest new moon the sealing day betwixt, betwixt my love and me forever bond of fellowship upon that day either prepare to die for disobedience to your father's will or else to wed demetrius as he would or on Diana's altar to protest for I austerity and single life. And then he goes away after some more talking. And uh, there's a general consistency, probably because the play's called The Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, there's a lot of just references to moons, to changeability, and to Diana, et cetera, et cetera. And part of me is just going, mm. you're putting it a little bit on the nose, William, but... I would say that, in addition to that, I would say that Shakespeare is presenting Theseus as the acceptable face of patriarchy. I'm not going to elaborate on that. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, folks. It is that, well, we have the father coming, you know, rule of the fathers. The father is saying, my daughter should marry this or she will die. Do as I say, daughter, do as I say. Theseus comes in and he is also someone who has forced his will on Hippolyta. He has forced his will on a woman from matriarchal society. And they said, no, you will do what I say. You will be my wife because of my will. So he is 
in this world of, you know, the men make the rules. But when he talks with Hermia, he actually tries to reason with her in a sense. He's not just ordering her around. He is saying either to die the death or to abjure forever the society of men. Therefore, for Hermia, question your desires. Know of your youth, examine well your blood, and as you quoted before. So he is saying to her, look, I'm not ordering you to do this. I'm just letting you know the options and really consider what you are choosing here. So, yes, he's being patronizing to her. He's treating her as a child, saying, no, know yourself, you know, calm down, dear. Think for a bit. Do you really want to be a nun? Not that there's anything wrong with that. Thrice blessed they and all that, but really, a nun? How awful. It's a bit more reasonable on his end. Oh yeah, as long you get to live, but you know, you'll have to live knowing that you are denied most of the traditional happinesses bestowed upon your sex, which is uh, marriage, children, and being looked after, I guess. Shall we move on to the youths being youths? Ah, uh, to... Uh... Lysander and Hermia wanting to run away together. Actually, I would point out that how's... let's talk about these youths because throughout the play, I think Shakespeare intentionally makes it so that Lysander and Demetrius are quite similar and that Helena and Hermia are quite similar so that there's really no difference between them, really. Yeah. I mean, that would kind of depend on, on, um, yeah, and if, in terms of personality traits or, um, in that sense, yes, there is absolutely no difference, really, that the writer, Shakespeare, um, makes apparent to us, except, um, that Demetrius is a bit of a sex pest. That, and, um, Helena is has a severe complex um against very her. low self esteem. Yeah, poor baby. <laughs> she's she's I think she's the best character though. Yes, her uh, uh, beat me like a spaniel and I'll come to you harder. Uh not that part. <laughs> not that part. <laughs> But... When it comes to them, I, I will admit the first time I read this, spoilers, audience, but by the end of this play, everything is sorted out so that everyone can be happy. Lysander is matched with Hermia, and Helena is matched with Demetrius. Now, when I first read this play, I thought, oh, well, Demetrius, he's just sort of pushed around into this. He... He showed no love for Helena before. The love potion plot came in later on. It's only reading it this time that I've noticed the part that... So here's a line where Lysander is saying, I'll avouch to his head, that's Demetrius, Demetrius, I'll avouch it to his head, made love to Neda's daughter, Helena. So made love just means, you know, wooed, uh, flirted with. Uh, so already we're getting the idea that, oh, Demetrius and Helena, they were together before. Helena's his ex-girlfriend. So I like that Shakespeare is lacing this part in, so it's not just out of nowhere later on. And I, I will put it like this. 
For this podcast, you weren't here, so we have read The Two Gentlemen of Verona, and that is a similar one where there are two guys, two girls, and they do need to sort up them into couples at the end of it. And in that one, I do believe it is a bit more dodgy how they're sorted into couples at the end. It feels a bit more arbitrary. I can't remember the plot because it wasn't that good of a play, but it felt a bit more dodgy. In this one, Shakespeare is setting it up so Lysander and Hermia, okay, they love each other. Demetrius wants Hermia, ah, but deep down and prior to Hermia, he actually wants Helen. So he, he does lace it quite well. Yeah, it is very much a, a blink and you miss it kind of um line because I definitely missed it in the first in the first listening, and then it's like, wait, wait, what did he just say? And then I had to rewind it and go, oh, 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 okay. So Demetrius has history with Helena, which is. Uh, I mean, you can then sort of go, well, maybe he's forcing himself to like Helena to make sure. I mean, no, I mean, Hermia to make sure that, you know, everyone stays alive and happy. Um, maybe he has like just sort of a secret thing going on in the background that is making him go against his true wishes. Um, but no, I don't like him. I don't like him at all. He's mean. He is, his one defining character trait is that he is constantly threatening women with uh, sexual assault. Pretty much. And contempt. It's a bit of, but mostly, ah. It's like in those 1960s children's cartoons. What's this boy character's personality trait? Oh, sexism. It's so bad. I, yeah, I just, if he had died in the play i would have been quite happy but unfortunately this is a comedy and i almost don't agree with this comedy being a comedy um but i on I that would, note yeah. on that note of you disagree with this comedy being a comedy i will bring up a quote by a guy called gerard langben from 1691 where he describes this play midsummer night's dream a comedy. The comical part of this play is printed separately in four-inch quarto and used to be acted at Bartholomew Fair and other markets in the country by strollers under the title of Bottom the Weaver. Now, I like these. He says, Midsummer Night's Dream, a comedy. The comical part of this play, that's the bottom part. So you can very easily remove all the comedy in just this one part. But the rest of it, I don't know what to call that. That's not comedy. It really isn't. Um... Because it's it's th throughout the play, it's immensely mean. It's generally tragic, um, and all the meanness is just hand waved away in the most unsatisfactory manner. Um, and part of me wonders. Okay, well, I'll make this hot take. I have two hot takes for this play, um, and I will make my first hot take when we get to bottom. Um, and, and the tradies. When we get to the bottom of bottom. Yes, indeed. It is. Uh, I agree with you in a sense. I have seen a few productions of this, and this is certain, as with most of Shakespeare's comedies, whoever puts it on stage 
needs to really oomph it up to make it funny, or even to make it light-hearted. Because this is not Shakespeare's fault, but Shakespeare is, in today's language, by default, very high register. So all of his light and happy things, they are always a bit too serious. So you really need to force and really wink at the audience that, no, we're meant to be taking this as a light thing. And, you know, we, Sophie, we saw a 1968 one by the Royal Shakespeare Company or something. And in that one, they really read this like respectable 1960s British actors reading out Shakespeare. And that just makes this too somber and too dull and too serious. It is not a comedy. <laughs> it was quite, it was, I won't, it, I won't go so far as to say it was unenjoyable, but uh, did I find it enjoyable? Not really. It was, it was a play. Yeah, I have seen version, the recent, there's a recent National Theatre Live one, and in that one, they do manage to do the stagecraft and the speaking of alliance in such a way that you think, oh, this is happy, buoyant, the silliness rather than oh respectable Shakespeare. Yes. Because yes, you're saying oh, it's very mean spirited, but you know there are plenty of comedies that are quite mean spirited. I can't quite think of them, but let's 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 not look at love comedy. Let's go to uh, Looney Tunes. Oh, how mean spirited that the coyote is always getting his head blown off. So like, <laughs> no, it's funny. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, um, which will take me to my second hot take eventually. Um, but f for Kint's Snug Bottom Flute Snout and Starveling, their names, their names, they don't call each other any of these names. Shakespeare was just amusing himself, other than Bottom the Weaver. I mean, actually, so Peter Quince, they, they do say it a bit, but then they never say it ever again. Yeah, no, Peter Quince I remember hearing, but I do not remember hearing Snug. I do not remember hearing Snout or Flute or Starveling. What kind I mean, of they, they, Starveling? I mean, Quince says, Robin Starveling, you must play Thisbe's mother. And Tom Snout, the tinker. So they do say it, but they never say it again. Okay, okay. Also, it probably helps that, you know, they had actual names that I latched onto, like Tom Snarveling. But, oh... Shakespeare, what are you doing with these names? As comedy, do you think this works? I mean, I think it does, but do you think it works? I mean, actually, I'll put I'll, two separate questions. Does it work as comedy? And is it funny? Act one, scene two, um, starring the um, Trades. Absolutely. Rude mechanicals, yes. <laughs> absolutely comedy. And it could even be funny. Um, uh, so Bottom keeps interrupting, um, despite the, the main guy that's doing the delegations of the, the parts, and that part is actually funny in both audiobook and, um, in the movie, because you, you, you see him rolling his eyes going, Bottom, please let me just carry on, I, I, we're all... We're all short on time, please. Um, 
That guy who just gets a bit too into it. The underling who's just a bit too into it. And he says, no, no, I'm going to do it. Oh, no, I'm." he basically takes on the leader's role because you're so into it. Yeah, and Bottom's like, oh, no, I can play this guy and the lady and the mother. And Quince is like, please? No, you cannot. It is one person per role. And um, I do um, find it funny also that uh, one of the guys is like, can I do the lion because I can't I, I'm not good at I don't we're good not good at remembering lines and I I get you man I get you so I pray you if it be give it to me for I am slow of study and Quinn says you may do it extempore for it is nothing but roaring bottom let me play the lion too I will roar that I will do any man's heart good to hear me I will roar that I will make the duke say let him roar again let him roar again. Um, although I would just like to point out um, in the audiobook, uh, Bottom didn't like let him roar again. Let him roar again. And I was just like, that would make a very good fun um, chant for the audience to to be making at you know Bottom's prompt. Come on, let him roar again. Let him roar again. Clap, clap. And as a joke, that would work in both ways. If the audience does it, then okay, that's funny. If the audience doesn't do it, then that's also a joke that he, he has failed to make the audience follow him along. Yeah, like, I think that 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 two lines alone would make a really good comedic moment. So, um, yeah, answer your, answer your question. This is comedic, and B, it can be funny. It is. And... Um, yeah, as as comedy, it works because it's all based in these characters, and we understand this type of guy that exists. These types of bad artists who lack so much taste that they think that they they really overestimate just how convincing they'll be, and they overestimate how good they are. Like Bottom, he thinks he's a brilliant actor, but his idea of a brilliant monologue to say is. The raging rocks, the shivering shock shall break the locks of prison's gates, and Phibus's car shall shine from far and make and mar the foolish fates. Now this is this is sort of an archetype of very bad doggerel sort of basic rhymes for people who can't deal with proper poetry. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about limericks, but I will not. There once was a girl from the pits, and she had the most lovely... Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh... <laughs> um, and um, also, I kind of find uh, Bottom to be similar to people who are good at making very good conversation in the moment, but when they are placed on stage, will absolutely bomb because they underestimate the kind of craft necessary for being you know funny and charming and just generally witty in person versus evocative and remembering your lines on stage like, why why are you why did you get into stand-up comedy well my friends they say i'm so funny so i thought you know what maybe i should give it a go uh. yeah. yeah and that is um like that's an easy trap to fall into i can 
definitely see myself doing that if I didn't have social anxiety of a gerbil. Most, I'd say the only reason why I haven't made many mistakes is that I am terrified of making any attempts. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> Who? The lovers Lysander and Hermia escape into the forest. But Helena, to win brownie points with Demetrius, has snitched on her childhood friend Hermia's elopement, chased by Demetrius and Helena. Lysander and Hermia are chased by Demetrius and Hermia through the forest, but who else is in the forest? Fairies. Oberon and Titania are king and queen of the fairies, and they are fighting over an Indian prince child they have kidnapped. That old chestnut. Oberon will have the boy, and he plans to humiliate his wife for refusing him this human child. He gets a love potion to use on her. Ah, but Oberon hears Helena pining for Demetrius and Demetrius pushing away Helena. And because the king of the fairies is a right busybody, he tells his mischievous fairy servant, Puck, to use the love potion on Demetrius to make him love Helena. Unfortunately, all Athenians look alike to Puck. So he uses the potion on Lysander, who now loves Helena instead of Hermia. I think I got the majority of the farce into that, did I, Sophie? Yeah, pretty much. So which is the most objectionable part we should begin with? Shall we begin with how Demetrius is a bit of a sexual assault guy? Or should we get into how Oberon wants to get himself cucked? Or shall we talk about how Lysander pushes... Or shall we talk about kidnapping an Indian prince? Let's go with the Indian prince, shall we? It's like one of those things where every time I hear it, I'd say it was a stage in my ability to understand Shakespeare. Well, you know, when you're beginning to read and listen to Shakespeare, you sort of go along with it and get as much of the gist as possible. It was at the sort of upper beginner stage where I was watching the play and thinking, wait, Indian child? Did they just say an Indian prince? This is a backstory bit. Why an Indian child? This is a weird detail. Yeah, no, it is a... Wait, why why that specific continent? It's it is a weird thing to be saying. Um I mean I suppose the idea is that, you know, the this is a weird rich place far away. That's where these sort of magic things happen. <laughs> yeah, it's where the spices come from. Um I guess like they decided um Italy or France isn't quite, you know, exotic enough. Um and they decided, okay, where do we where do people know of? That is quite far away where magical things like spices come from and silk. Um, India. Let's go with that. 
Um, I will make a note. That... I do remember. It sort of reminds me. There was a Nick Helm joke. I, maybe it's Nick Helm. I forget. He's a sort of shouty bearded comedian. And he was reading out this kind of poem that was done like one of those old allegorical poems. And one of the lines was, I saw a blind man lead a Jew. And that was funny because you think, oh, yeah, it is sort of weird that in these allegories you treat like real groups of people as if they're sort of fantasy creatures who mean something allegorically. The blind people exist. Jews exist. Indian princes exist. Why are you using them as sort of a, a hint that this is a weird magical allegory world? Yeah, well, like, it kind of it has to be an al allegory magical land because um, Titania um, describes also that she's um, sitting on Neptune's beaches or something. Um, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sit your heart at rest. The fairy land buys not the child of me. His mother was a votaress of my order, and in the spiced Indian air by night, full often hath she gossiped by my side and sat with me on Neptune's yellow sands, marking the embarked traders on the flood, when we have laughed to see the sails conceive and grow big-bellied with the wanton wind. And I'm just going, unless there is actually a river named Neptune, she has been sitting on Neptune, the stars, yellow sand. I, I mean, Neptune as in the king of the sea. So she is literally saying, I have sat on the ocean. Yeah, still, still, like, still. It doesn't change the fact that um, India is, at the moment, treated um, like a magical place that doesn't exist, or at least exists only in, in fantasy land. Because you don't, you don't sit on a beach. That's named Neptune, but uh, um, also I guess like for fairies, like humans are but puppies. Like they they swap children out for funsies and leave changelings behind. Like, like on this note, this this does bring us into how uh, you mentioned before how Shakespeare makes the fairies nice and cute, and he does this quite a lot. Where, where especially here, because Puck is previously, we get the idea of what Puck's mischief is. And Puck's mischief is, oh, he, he pulls a stool away just as you're about to sit down. He makes milk go sour. Now, you, know, you, you think of old-fashioned fairies, and the fairies will pro They do evil things. They, they do more than just make your milk go a bit bad. And the kinds of bad things they do is steal your children and replace them with, uh, well, essentially, it's a way to explain why your children are disabled. Uh, so, yes, it's the, the, the superstition is not that good from a societal standpoint, but the idea is that the fairies are kidnapping children. That's a bad thing fairies do. But even this thing that fairies do, Shakespeare makes it the most acceptable thing possible because they haven't just kidnapped a child. No. So there is a votress of Titania's order. Okay, so she, this, this woman, this mother, loves... Titania, she has died in childbirth. And so Titania is now adopting the child to take care of this child. So it is a perfectly wholesome thing to do. So Shakespeare is really going out of his way to make the fairies as wholesome and acceptable as possible. And um, for me, like we don't even know who the dad of the Indian prince is. So for we assume all, the king. Yeah. 
so we assume that um like for all we know it could have been it could have been half fairy half human it could have been you know a, a virginal um happenings like the mother mary for all you know um like it's so generally unexplained with a beautiful air of mystery that part of me wonders if titania and this like indian lady was you know was girlfriend was girlfriend girlfriend just the the absolute palace more and more sophie you're piling up all of the fan fiction you need to write I am I am piling a lot of fan fiction that I need to write apparently. Um I just Antronicus. Dispatches no. a whore. No. <laughs> Edward the second. Would okay, do uh, if we ever get uh, you know, an email, a single email um to the to the account that is asking for an AO3 account that specifically for all the the plays and poetry that we've done, I might consider doing it. I will consider it with one. I will actually do it with five. How about that? How about that? We don't have a comment section, thank God. Yeah, so um, Oberon, in this specific argument versus Titania and Oberon, Oberon is definitely the, the bad party, the wrong party. And, I mean, some people... When they view this play, they view it as, you know, male power asserting itself over female power. Like in this one, Oberon, he does win in the end. He gets the, the child for himself after humiliating his wife. And I think, and this is sort of viewed as to be a good thing, I think, but let me find it. So, um... Ah, so their marital strife, the marital strife of fairies. So Titania says, uh... But with thy brawls thou hast disturbed our sport, therefore the winds, piping to us in vain as in revenge, have sucked up from the sea contagious fogs which, falling in the land, hath every pelting river made so proud that they have overborne their continents. The ox hath therefore stretched his yoke in vain, the ploughman lost his sweat, and the green corn hath rotted ere his youth attained a beard. And yada yada yada. So... Their marital strife is actually causing deep problems in the world of nature. And it's only at the end, when Oberon puts his woman in her place, that nature gets back to normal. I mean, uh, yeah, the only time, the only way that I can consider this, that I can see this being framed as okay, is that, uh, Titania is really, really overprotective to a point that she needs to loosen up. And they used to do these kind of pranks to each other all the time. And Oberon's yes, like... Yes, I, I do. Yeah. On that note, it does seem when they wonder... They're fighting over the child where she does seem to just be coddling this Indian prince too much. And Oberon says, no, I want to put him to work. I want to make... I want to train him to be my knight. So, you know, maybe that could be the way. Stop coddling the boy. I'll actually give him something to do. Yeah, like, um, it's like, I know that he, that he's the son of your best friend and you loved your gal pal a lot, but maybe just because he's mortal 
doesn't mean that we shouldn't leave every single knife around him. You know, we shouldn't just put him in a in a cushion room, you know? And Titanus, no, no, I'm going to keep this boy safe. And it's like, okay, 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 cool, 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 cool. Hey, Puck, uh, let's make sure Titania knows how to have fun again. Um, and then... A bit of good old bestiality is what will cure her. <laughs> On this note, I mean... The reason why he's using a love potion on Titania to make her love something in the forest is to humiliate her. But you know, it, it, it certainly would be very easy to do to make him look ridiculous. Because what he is doing here is he is orchestrating his own cuckolding. That is, you know, at the time, that is like the worst thing that can happen to a man. Your wife running off with someone else. And he is orchestrating it. He is making it so his wife will go with someone worse than and more ugly than him. Yeah, it is um it is definitely a choice because he could have just used a love potion so that it affected her with him, her husband. Like why why oh, was but that would be boring. Where's the fisson? Where's the naughtiness than that? Will I need to make this an explicit episode, Sophie? We haven't sworn. We have tried to avoid saying anything actually explicit. But is this already getting into dark territory? I mean, I don't think so. I, because, like, there have been worse plays for this, for, for explicitness. And I feel like... Unless you go really deep into subtext or at least really deep deep into implications that are be beyond surface level, this play is pretty milk toast. Like in later um scene you have um the two Lysander and Hermia. Um that are about to go to bed and um she's like no 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 i want to be chased um, we're going to be good um i want you to be a good husband too so let's sleep you sleep over there i sleep over here far away from each other because you i love you that much like i i know you respect me that much and lysander's like mm, fine and that, um, that really does play incredibly modern it is just like, it's like, oh, let's sleep together. And Holmes, no, 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 please just lie a bit further off. And he's saying, oh, come on, just a little. And she's like, no, no, don't do that. And Lysander takes no as no. Good for him. Good uh, woke boy. <laughs> Demetrius has more trouble with this concept. I mean, yeah, he definitely does. Um, but yeah, so in terms of surface level happenings and surface level talkings it's a pretty milk toast play Still it, it really does depend on how you present it i remember that there was some famous story of you know some school was doing midsummer night's dream for their middle school class and so they brought these kids to see a big production of it in London. What they didn't know was this was an avant-garde production where it was a very sexually explicit depiction of the fairies. 
Delightful. You know, big fat men in tights with massive cod pieces. Oh. <laughs> Delightful. Ugh. That's so unnecessary. At least I find it slightly unnecessary. Um, but yeah, so was, would, was that the next scene or the scene after? In It is the act after. Which one? The when Lysander and um, Hermia are like, no, 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 sleep over there. Ah, uh, this is in this act, in act two, scene two, yes. So yeah. he says, uh, be it so, Lysander, find you out of bed, for I upon this bank will rest my head. And Lysander says, one turf shall serve as pillow for us both, one heart, one bed, two bosoms, and one trough. And Hermia says, nay, good Lysander, for my sake, my dear, lie further off yet. Do not lie so near. And then this goes back and forth a bit. Right. And we have the contrast in Demetrius, where he says, uh, so, so he's telling Helena to go away, go away. Tempt not too much the hatred of my spirit, for I am sick when I do look on thee. And Helena says, well, and I am sick when I look not on you. And Demetrius says, you do impeach your modesty too much to leave the city and commit yourself into the hands of one that loves you not, to trust the opportunity of night and the ill counsel of a desert place and the rich worth of your virginity. Now, it's quite clear what he's perhaps threatening there. <laughs> yeah. So I will not stay thy questions. Let me go. Or if thou follow me, do not believe, but I shall do thee mischief in the woods. And then Helena says, I in the temple and the town, the field, you do me mischief. Now, you can read that in multiple ways, as I have done, where it's a bit like, oh, go on, do it, do it. Now, that is a way you can make this funny. Or it can be, oh, you already wronged me. It depends on how up for it you want to make it. Yeah. Um, this, in the audiobook, it was very much, uh, do it, but it was do it in a very, like, desperate, and then you might love me again, kind of thing, and I'm just going, oh god, Helena, you, no, please, no, you deserve, you deserve so much better than this. Uh... And this is when Oberon shows up to say, ah, here's a relationship I can make work. Mine ain't working, so I'm gonna start <laughs> gonna start messing with someone else's. He's like, the fairies are real busybodies. They can't just leave things alone. They really can't, can they? It's very weird of them. It's like, how bored are they? Fairies, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Oh my god. I hate that how true that is in this particular play. Act three. This is the chaotic crisis of the piece. Puck turns bottom the actor into an ass, a donkey that is. And who should see donkey bottom but Titania? with a love potion in her eyes. He dotes on bottom donkey. Ah, but Oberon 
checks in with the Athenians and sees the right mess Puck has made. Demetrius and Lysander are in love with Helena. Well, Oberon and Puck got them into this mess, and just as easily they will get the Athenians out of it. Love potions, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. I had already written down that joke, and I'm repeating it again. By the next act, Demetrius will love Helena, and Lysander will love Hermia, and Titania will realise she's been kissing a weird donkey-human hybrid. I like uh, reading it now. I realise that... So, Oberon's plan was to make her fall in love with something in the forest. He never planned for it to be a weird donkey-human hybrid. That was Puck's initiative as a, as a delegate in this organisation. Yeah, no, it was definitely an accident. Um, uh, and um, it was a, a, what a choice. What a choice of accident it is. Because it could have it gone very badly for all involved. Like, uh, well, actually, it could have gone potentially wholesome. Because what if, um, you know, Titania had fallen in love with a rabbit? It could have just been, you know. Um, On that note, I think that the reason why... Shakespeare adds in the donkey thing is because to make it a bit more tasteful if she just fell in love with an animal that could get a bit you know dodgy uh, uh, so he I needs mean, to make it somewhat human I mean like on the one hand like it depends just because you know it's a love potion what are the parameters of love you know um if you just fell in love with a cat wouldn't you love the cat as a cat like, I don't think um, it would need a section in um, an adult website. But where know? will the audience's mind be going, Sophie? Yeah, no, I, I'm just thinking, like, Instagram cute girl stuff where, you know, I uh, love my cat so much. I love its little beans and I love its little flicky ears, and look at how long this long boy is, you know? Like, I can, like, it could have just been that kind of fall in love with a creature. I love my donkey human. Oh, it's so adorable. Look at his donkey head and his beige, pink, pasty human body. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. Look at its wit ah, uh, look at its wit eyes. Isn't it so wet and cute like a little pebble in a river? I can just, you know. Look at how he shivers, lacking all body hair. <laughs> I don't let him wear clothes. He's a donkey. Uh look at all the wrinkles. You know, so smooth. Such a smooth brained cat thing. Like, um uh, what are those hairless cats? I forget, but the audience knows. Egyptian yeah. hairless? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're actually hairless. Um, and I, there's, you know, the current, I'm going to age, this age, This podcast has been aged a lot already, but um, that, um, no, valleys are lumps, just smooth-brained, and um, the kitten of, like, I think they're, they're called sphinx cats. Um, a kitten of a sphinx cat has lots of, like, wrinkles and bumps and just looks ew. Um, but once it's grown, it's all sleek and like bright-eyed, and it's like yes, smooth, smooth is good. Um, now, audience, whenever you go to see 
Midsummer Night's Dream, that should be your image of Bottom, the donkey man. <laughs> just, a, just a smooth little sphinx cat, but human. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, why? How are we managing to make Shakespeare even funnier than it actually is? But anyway. So you have um, to admit he is funny to begin with. Mm, yes, I think I'm just being a bottom right now. Oh, this this funny thing? I'm making it funnier by talking about it. Um, bo bottom, he does make a lot of, you know, ass of me dramatic irony jokes. Like he comes in with a donkey's head and says, oh, someone wants to make an ass of me. Ha ha, get it, audience? He is a donkey. Yeah. I feel like um, Shrek 1 made a lot of jokes along those lines with donkey. Hey, get off my ass, I say in a Scottish accent. <laughs> ah, and that must have been genuinely funny at the time. Now it's just old because, you know, it is old, like 400 years old. But at the time, just a dude in a donkey, donkey like headpiece going, he's making an ass out of me. And it's like, oh, 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 so great. So funny. <laughs> Imagining Queen Elizabeth watching this and going, oh, 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 my Slapping God. her thighs, her belly bursting out of her corset, just absolutely vomiting with laughter. Yeah, thank you so much for that image. So, so delightful. Um, and I will say, reading this, the prank they play, so Puck is... He is he is trying to humiliate Titania. He is also trying to humiliate Bottom. But the way he humiliates Bottom is a it reminds me of the Christopher Sly prank from Taming of the Shrew. Where in Taming of the Shrew, the, the frame narrative of Taming of the Shrew is that a noble abducts a drunk man and dresses the drunk man up as a nobleman and makes the drunk man think that he is a nobleman. And the prank there is that, oh, look at this stupid drunkard who thinks he's a nobleman. And to which you think, well, the drunk man, he's doing quite well out of this. At, at worst, he's going to think he's had a lovely dream. And that's sort of what's happening here, where Bottom, he is, they're saying, oh, look at this stupid moron Bottom. He looks like a donkey. Except he gets a very attractive fairy woman to dote on him. He gets lots of fairy servants to serve him. He does quite well out of this. The only part where it's a prank is that we, the audience, know that he's a stupid moron who does not deserve this. And also, Bottom never knows the horror that he that has been placed upon him. Like, he doesn't know forever. Ever. He, at some point, he just thinks, hmm, I have a craving for oats. That is, This is not my joke. This is Shakespeare's joke. He says, I have a craving to have some oats. And that's a perfectly fine craving to have. That's what the main ingredient of porridge is. It's nothing strange. If he had been there, like... there was that, although there was that um the famous definition from Samuel Johnson's dictionary, where it's like oats. In in most countries, it sustains horses, but in Scotland, sustains the people. Oh my god, that's a mean thing to say. But yeah, like so. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing to be craving after. To, you know, pottage is made out of oats. Um, but yeah, like, um, 
yeah, I don't, this bottom scenario is definitely left field. Um, and I guess that's kind of the point because Titanic. It should be noted that this is the, I think that this is one of the few plots of Shakespeare that he made up entirely on his own. So this is Shakespeare's mind working on its own. Shakespeare's mean. William yes. is mean. But yeah. Um, Park and Demetrius and Hermia. The next scene. Um, Hermia's a good girl. And she said she deserves far better than, than Hermia, than anyone. Oh, you mean Helena? So Helena it, deserves better than Hermia? No, Hermia... Oh, right, Helena. Yes, no, it's Helena that deserves um, much better than anyone. Because um, in the next scene, Hermia wakes up. I was like, oh, where's everyone? Um, and Lysander and Helena are all... And everyone's just gathered together. And because of the love potion, Lysander loves... Um, uh, Her Helena, um, Demetria also loves, Demetrius also loves Helena, and... And she... the, the joke is that Helena has such low self-esteem that she thinks, oh, you're just making a joke on me, stop mocking me. And when Hermia says, oh, you've taken my boys away from me, and Helena says, oh, you too, you're mocking me as well. And to be honest, she has every right to think that, um, and even if she wasn't, even if she didn't have low self-esteem, because you clearly, it's like you, you clearly loved my best friend, my, my sister in arms, my sister from another mother. Um, and now you're turning against me. First of all, I don't, I think that's garbage. I do not believe you for a second. And how dare you think so low of me that I think that you would think I would fall for it. Um, I do like that she says here, good Hermia, do not be so So Helena says, good Hermia, do not be so bitter with me. I evermore did love you, Hermia. Did ever keep your counsels, never wronged you. Save that in love unto Demetrius, I told him of your stealth unto this wood. He followed you, for love I followed him, but he hath chid me. So essentially she's saying here, Look, I have, I have been a perfect friend, other than betraying you to this awful man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. As, mm, yeah, that was, that was your, that was your mistake, dear Hermia. Um, no, Helena, I hate this. I think it's meant to be confusing. I know, but that doesn't make it easier for to like. So, my, okay. So Helena is the lady that is um, modeled against, um, you know, the the queen of the gods, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I know it's not. I, I know it's technically Juno slash um, the the Greek name that I cannot remember off the top of my head right now. Hera. Hera. Yes. Um, the one that is technically um the one that's the most purest in terms of marriage but also is the one that's cheated on a hundred times always um while hermia is modeled against hermes um god god of wind and flightiness and thieves <laughs> um 
Demetrius for some reason. Um, Demeter. Um, goddess of um, bounty and fruitfulness. Which begs the question, what is Lysander? What's Lysander's name based off of? Alexander, I think. Maybe. But yeah, I was just like, oh, at least I can keep them straight in my head by um, attaching them their names to Greek, Roman peeps, gods, um, and work my way back, except for Lysander, for some weird reason. Um, and yeah, no, Helena is having a is a, having a bad time. Is having a bad time. Uh, and she admits to the mistake that she made, but you know, uh, right oh now. Oh my god, she admitted. Yeah, yeah, she admitted it, and it goes immediately. And Helena is, doesn't believe in her friend. And come on, like, lo, she is one of this confederacy. Now I perceive they have conjoined all three to fashion this false sport in spite of me. Injury, injurious Hermia, most ungrateful maid. Have you conspired? Have you with these contrived to bait me with this foul derision? Is all the counsel that we too have shared, the sisters' vows, the hours that we have spent, when we have chid the hasty-footed time for parting us? Oh, is it all forgot? All school days, friendship, childhood, innocence, we, Hermia, like two artificial gods, have with our needles created both one flower, both on one sampler, sitting on one cushion, both warbling of one song, both in one key, as if our hands, our sides, voices, and minds had been incorporate. So we grow together, like to a double cherry seeming parted, but yet an union in partition, two lovely berries moulded on one stem, so with two seeming bodies, but one heart, two of the first, like coats and heraldry, do but to one and crowned with one crest, and will you rent our ancient love asunder to join with men in scorning your poor friend? It is not friendly, tis not maidenly. Our sex, as well as I, may chide you for it, though I alone do feel the injury. I remember, <laughs> I was in the Critical Heritage, I found one commentary on this part where, he, where some guy said, Ah, oh, well, yes, it's very nice poetry, but is it realistic? that Helena could think of such good poetry in the moment. Oh my god, that's so... We, we found a cinema sins guy in the 1700s. Yeah. Rude. Although I will say about, about this scene, I hate all of it. I hate all of this scene because um, I think it's mean. I think it's garbage. Um, there is no loyalty anywhere. Um, however, the insult and the insults are great. <laughs> I okay. My third hot take, my first and least hot take, is um, the best line of Shakespeare is in this play, and it is Go when on. Lysander goes, "Get you gone, you dwarf, you minimus of hindering knotgrass maid, you bead, you acorn." <laughs> <laughs> I cannot stress enough how much I laughed each time I re-listened to Midsummer Night's Dream and 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 you acorn <laughs> showed up in my brain space and I was most I It's the I perfect kind of insult because 
yes, it's an insult, but also you're confused so that you can't really fight back for a bit. It is the most delightful insult that I have ever heard. 10 out of 10, no notes. If you call me an acorn, I will be so impressed and yet so deeply hurt. Um, but yeah, best line in all of Shakespeare. Um, and the interesting part for this particular exchange is that I was able to laugh at you, Acorn, in the audiobook, but not in the 1960s version. Like, the, the delivery was so contemptuous. I'm just like, and like, in such a way that clearly was meant to, you know, hurt deeply instead of being very ridiculous. Um, because it is a ridiculous insult. You acorn. It's like you calling someone, you know, you walnut. You, you muppet. You macadamia. Um, Hang and, off, thou cat, thou burr. And um, also, who's... <laughs> and Hermia's being insulted for being short. And it's like... And... It's like, no, I'm, I'm, sh hey, I may be short, but I'm tall enough to size it. And it's like, no, get this, get this tiny little creature away from me. Get this gremlin off my shoes. Little again, nothing but low and little. Why will you suffer her to flout me thus? Let me come to her. It's like, clearly, like, let me come to her. Clearly, let me at her, which is great. Um, oh, it's. Yeah, it's such a good exchange of words. Um, and, it, and it has the potential to be genuinely funny. But the lead up to it is kind of so heartbreakingly mean, um, especially against Helena. Because um, when Lysander first goes, hey, Helena, I was wrong about Hermia. I definitely dig you. She's like, no, how dare you? You're you're my best friend's love. Like you can't you definitely don't think that. Um and when It really requires the actors to do it in a certain way to make it well mean, but in a more uh funny, farcical way. Yeah, and when Demetrius um turns back and like if Helen if Helena had been receptive to Demetrius turning on they're turning back to her and then Demetrius and Lysander have like a weird fight going you you dumbass um you you short stack um and just having these really fun stupid insults and then um Hermia coming in and then going why what is what is happening who what's going on how dare you leave me asleep in the middle of the night terrifying snake got me like that too like that's a genuinely good and reasonable fear to have um well while you're alone in the dark and and the boy that you ran away with is missing in the dark that's terrifying that's not fun at all um and then like um then there's there with the dude that's been harassing you forever with your best friend who supposedly told the harasser that that she 
that they were there and then like it's generally messy i don't like it i really don't like it it's it's not funny it's not comedic at all act four oberon clears up the crisis off stage, Titania gave Oberon the Indian boy. Remember the Indian boy? Remember that that was the inciting incident? And now Oberon feels so sorry for Titania that he dispels the love potion and takes off Bottom's donkey head. Demetrius, Lysander, Helena, and Hermia go back to Theseus to tell him that Aegeus will no longer be able to kill his daughter Hermia. Demetrius now wants to marry Helena, so Lysander is free to marry Hermia. Happy ending. Oh, wait, there's another act. Did I miss anything? No. This is... I'd say that if you gave this to a modern screenwriting guru, they would say, well, there's certainly a conflict in here, but the conflict... It's, it's a deus ex machina. None of these characters actually got out of the conflict by themselves. A fairy comes in, starts the problem, and then the fairy solves the problem. That's also probably why I don't like this play much, because it's... They say so many mean things to each other, and then it's resolved. And also, um, you know, in the scene, they go, oh... What a strange dream we had. And then we'll tell each other about this dream. And I'm pretty sure this wasn't a good dream. I'm pretty sure this was a nightmare where, you know, like. Um, I had a dream and you were there and, and you were there and you, you were there and you were fighting and we were fighting and you called me an acorn. Like. It wasn't, it wasn't go, I wouldn't go so far as say it was a nightmare, but it was. It's that kind of dream where you wake up and you really want to hit your partner for what they did in the old dream. Apparently, I haven't had one of those yet. And I'm technically not looking forward to that. Um, although it would be funny. Is it funny? I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was, the, it was that, that whole, this whole, this whole play. Is that dream in it? Basically, a partner says, "You cheated on this me." This really dream. was Slap. a Midsummer Night's Dream. You cheated on me in my dream. Slap and just doesn't talk to them for the whole day. It's like, but I didn't <laughs> do anything except you did, Demetrius. Except you did, Lysander. Uh... The characters don't learn. A terrible play. <laughs> I don't like it. It's not fun. But now to the enemies to lovers thing I was. So it, it is more subtle than that would seem. So the way I read Theseus and Hippolytus' marriage is that she is a war bride, and I'm not taking the this is a fairy tale sort of war bride, which is sort of like, oh, it's sort of like an arranged marriage. It's obviously worse than that, but you know, the idea is that. She has been abducted and forced to marry Theseus. She doesn't really like it. She's not here. Again, don't view this as being a realistic depiction of what happens when you 
take an enemy general and force them to marry someone. It's not that emotionally raw or real. It's just that she doesn't want to be there. And my reading of her only lines in the first act were her being, oh, I hope that my goddess Diana will kill you in your bed. Oh, I don't like this. Except here, I get the sense that she is beginning to warm to Theseus because she realizes that them, you know, both being, you know, quite macho generals, they have something in common. Because, you know, Theseus, he says, Go, one of you, find out the forester, for now our observation is performed. And since we have the vanguard of the day, my love shall hear the music of my hounds. Uh, so he is, so he's, he's saying, don't find music of the actual musical instruments. He's saying, my love, Hippolyta, you'll hear my hunting dogs. My hunting dog, you know, so that is music, lovely music. My hunting dogs barking and woofing. To which Hippolyta says, I was with Hercules and Cadmus once, when in the wood of Crete they bade the bear with hounds of Sparta. Never did I hear such gallant chiding, for besides the groves, the skies, the fountains, every region near seemed all one mutual cry. I never heard so musical a discord, such sweet thunder. So we get the sense that she's saying, oh, I, I like the sound. I remember my past. I do like the sound of hunting dogs barking and cheering at the sky. So they, she is realizing, oh, we actually have something in common. We are both the kind of, you know, up at it physical, we like sport, we like hunting sort of people. Enemies to lovers. Indeed. Yeah. And by the end of this play, she is very much, you know, she she is talking with him reasonably like they're they have reasonable marital disagreements about what should we watch tonight that is what the rest of this is what should we watch tonight shall we watch a tragedy shall we watch a comedy or shall we watch this so bad it's good play yeah they go for the so bad it's good play <sighs> and there's another point where it's like um so we have demetrius to meet all the lovers, they come back and they say, Aegeus, you can't kill your daughter anymore. Because Demetrius is now in love with Helena. And he does say something where he says, the object and the pleasure of mine eye is only Helena. To her, my lord, was I betrothed ere I see Hermia. Now, this is a detail I missed when I previously had read this. Apparently, so in, in Shakespeare's time, betrothal was a sort of verbal contract. It was not quite engagement, but it could have legal force. So it is a bit of, so, you know, it, either this presents Demetrius as being quite a worse sort of guy, where he is set, where he, beforehand, he did, he was technically engaged to Helena, but then tossed her aside so that he could get with Hermia. Or this is him trying to, you know, being a good guy and trying to tie Aegeus' hands by saying, oh no, I cannot marry your daughter Hermia because I am already betrothed. Even before I tried to marry your daughter, I was already tied legally and spiritually to Helena. Do we want to see him as a good guy or a bad guy? I mean, it would really depend on uh, how it's played in it, because, because um, frankly, Demetrius is mean. He's cruel, and 
but like he could be cruel he could be potentially cruel in a tsundere way and i hate saying that phrase but you know um so as opposed to the quite um rapey way he is in so let's go back to the previous act where essentially uh demetrius says if she cannot entreat i can compel and Lysander says, Thou canst compel no more than she entreat. Thy threats have no more strength than her weak prayers. So Demetrius is saying, Look, if she won't give it to me, I'll take it from her. But Lysander says, No, don't. No, that, that, that's bad. You know, get her consent. Oh, no. I forgot about that part. Um, no, it was for me, um, I mostly mean like the first um, interaction between Demetrius and um, Helena in the woods when they first enter when he's like i could hurt you would that finally make you leave me alone um he could mean that genuinely in that i will hurt you or i could i will attempt to hurt you if you don't leave me alone or it could be the tsundere way of i of inside i won't because i liked you or i or i might still like you still i don't know but I could hurt you. I'm not going to, but I could. I'm saying the words it's out loud. It's not like I like you, Baka. Yeah, it was like, it's not that I don't like you. It's not that I won't hurt you. Why don't you give it a try? And Helena might be going, I know you, you won't. Um, so it's like, it could be a, you know, three, four, five D chess level of relationship bananas, banana fruit salad that I'm forcing upon this character in the hopes of of making me not necessarily like him but redeem him in my own eyes but you know what i just don't like him i really don't <laughs> if he's if to be able to make him seem like a re like a potentially nice character you you're gonna have to use japanese anime tropes to really make it work I feel this is i remember someone was saying that uh the reason why they like opera is that it's basically just anime. It is that level of excess. It is that level of, you know, just bluntly stating what you feel in a excessive way. I mean, most, most classic culture of the West can be quite easily adapted to anime. And even made better. Yes. <laughs> As we learned last time when we read Osamu Tezuka's Merchant of Venice. You were going to say it in Japanese in that really awful voice again, weren't you? Venice was shorted! Curse you. No, at the moment, Sophie, you might have heard it, but my, my throat is not in the best shape, so I was worried about doing that. <laughs> Act 5 The plot's finished, but here's a whole nother act. It's Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding feast. And the entertainment. For a laugh, they choose Pyramus and Thisbe by the rude mechanicals. Pretty much... Just to heckle them? Then the fairies come back on stage and do a song and say it's a happy ending. 
And then Puck comes on to tell you that if you don't like it, it's just a play. Don't like, don't watch. Yeah, Did I miss anything? Good. No, it's a very it's a very short and concise play, and for that I appreciate it. But also, Puck Puck's entry at the very end was strictly unnecessary. It sounds almost defensive, Willie. And if perchance we have offended, don't leave comments. <laughs> so dumb. Oh, fantastic. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. And if this... Would you be surprised, Sophie, to know that this was the final line in that, that Spider-Man episode I was talking about? Really? The Green Goblin fading to black saying this. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. Oh, I hate that. I hate that immensely. It is. This... So in this play, the plot, that's already done. That was done in the previous act. This last act is just, oh, let's, let's have some fun. Let's do a early version of Mystery Science Theatre 3000. Let's watch a play that's so bad it's Gordon just heckled them. Yeah. The thing is, like, everyone knew it was going to be bad. Like, the audience knew that it was going to be bad in a very specific and arguably interesting way. Um, especially when Quince, in Act 1, Scene 2, said, Mary, our play is the most lamentable comedy and most cruel death of Pyramus and Thisbe. Like, somewhere, somehow, the word tragedy and comedy were flipped in Quince's little playbook. Someone was messing with him. Um, and then you have, like, that, that alone would have, you know, made the audience sort of pay attention, going, wait a, wait a, wait a minute, this thing, <laughs> Pyramus and Thisbe, is absolutely not a comedy. It is definitely a tragedy. It's, the, it's what... Romeo and Shakespeare is based on. It's definitely, absolutely a tragedy. What are you talking about? And then the whole scene where everyone's going, oh, what are we going to do for a moon? Um, we'll, we'll use a lantern, I guess. Um, and people will be like, well, and, and the people are going, wait, no. The audience won't know it's a moon. They'll just think it's a lantern. Well, is there going to be moonlight on the night of the, of the party? Yes, yes, there is. Okay, cool. We won't need the lantern. We won't need the moon. We'll just carry on. Um, and then... Like, it's, it's just a very... So even today, it does really get the, gets a certain thing about amateur writers and amateur artists where they don't know how much you can just leave the audience's imagination. Like, there is this thing where you need to tell amateur writers that you don't need to show us a character moving from room to room. You can just cut to them in that other room. You don't need to show us a character walking down a corridor. And so for these characters, you don't need to actually show us the moon. You don't need to show us a wall. You can just tell the audience that there's a moon and a wall. They'll believe you. Yeah. Um, and 
it only has a CinemaSins um, vibe to it when they go, oh, the audience, why shouldn't we say in the prologue that um, no one on stage is actually dying, that we're just pretending that we're dying, or, you know, the lion isn't a real lion. Oh, how about we just remove half, the bottom half of that face, and so they'll they'll see a human face underneath the lion top, like a hat or a hoodie. Um, and you, they just go on and on and on. And so you know that it's going to be bad. And then I'm sure um, Hippolyta and Theseus just stared at this title going, Lamentable Comedy, eh? And decided, let's go for it. Um, and... The question then becomes the director and the, um, the costumer and the obviously of course the actors themselves how far do they deliver on the ridiculosity of these tradies doing the play just on the note of the parody thing like it is an interesting thing to note that you know, with this play, Pyramus and Thisbe, Shakespeare is very much making fun of a certain kind of play from his time period, a certain kind of actor, a certain kind of uh, bad poetry. Except nowadays, the only poetry and plays from his time period that we know about or that most people care about is Shakespeare. So he's accidentally just done a parody of himself. Which is both hilarious and very tragic. Congratulations, you've played yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, baby! Poor boy. The audience might notice that we have less to say about the last parts of this because really a lot of the plot happens and is tied up in the third act yes um although actually now that uh we've we're not talking much about the end of this play um i wish to extol upon my other two hot takes so my first hot take uh was that um you acorn best uh line in all of shakespeare i will stand by it um what was my other hot take that i'd already mentioned so you know how Bottom and uh, Quince and the Tradies are doing a tragedy, technically, but they mm. think it's a comedy, so they're doing it like a comedy. Yeah. Uh, I'm postulating, I am hypothesizing or doing a hot take that Shakespeare challenged himself to do the exact opposite in that he said, this tragedy is in fact a comedy. It is. I mean, it is a, it is the kind of you know, uh, thing that Shakespeare does. Like, uh, I, I think, yeah, Shakespeare has an interesting relationship to genre, as he says. I'm so. It's, I would say that your opinion is he's trying to make a tragedy play as a comedy, or a comedy play as a tragedy, and he doesn't really succeed doing it. <laughs> no, I don't think it succeeds at all. At least, um, just reading it, it does not succeed. Um. But yeah, that's my hot take. Uh, that's my signal third hot take. And my final hot take is that um, the four youths, 
they frankly should have been siblings. Um, the romance should ah, have been... but that good old Tess British is a whore energy. Mm, no, none of the incest. Um, but they should have been siblings. Um, <laughs> you should you should edit yourself. Um, and the only way that this play can be done in such a way that I personally would enjoy it is through the medium of the Amazing World of Gumball, the TV show. Once more, aging the show. Yes, like I admit that show has been over for a few years now already, but I think the Amazing World of Gumball would have made the perfect uh, adaptation of, I was about to say Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, well, that also brings up another animated medium that probably could work. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, yes, it is. The irony is that Shakespeare does not work on the stage. He requires modern animation techniques. Absolutely. Um, I, and, I'm, and I say that with no irony. Because um, if you... Like, the meanness between romantic uh, people is oddly less forgivable between meanness between siblings, um, at least in my mind, because um, siblings are an existential curse that unless you, like, break with a horrific amount of trauma, um, there's no way of breaking it. You, you, you're, you're, just, you're stuck with siblings forever and always, unless they're actually dead. Um, and so... In sibling fights, there's a there's a certain level of cruelty that is allowed implicitly that is kind of inexcusable between romantic partners, and I think that line is kind of crossed in um, between Demetrius and Lysander, Helena and Hermia. However, if it was between like character like the sibling characters and maybe and a single friend um in from Gumball, it'd be very funny. It'd be very good. Um the Gumball dad is a dumb boy, a dumb but adorable boy. Um so I think he'd make a great bottom or a great Oberon. Cause um yeah, Oberon is a is a silly, silly boy that made that did a silly, silly plan that just so happened to work. So, on just a final note, I do think that there is perhaps a kind of thematic thing at the end, where you know, in a lot of Shakespeare's plays, they'll have characters, ref they'll have young lovers referencing other famous young lovers, and they always mention some tragic lovers where something bad happens to them, and you think, oh, you're creating the foreshadowing for your ultimate demise. In this one, Shakespeare is an interesting version of this, where, you know, at, at the end of it, they're thinking, oh, what shall we put on for the wedding feast? And someone says, oh, shall we do a tragedy? He's like, no, let's not do a tragedy. And in the end, they do choose a tragedy about young lovers who have bad things happen to them, except that it's a terrible tragedy, and they're laughing at it. So they're ensuring their happy ending by putting on a tragedy and about love working out badly and just laughing at it. I, I like that little twist on it. 
yeah, and is not the or life a cruel, cruel stage? Yes, which is what the fairies come on, basically. The puck comes on to say, well, if perchance we have offended, it's just a play. It's just a, it's just a joke. Why are you offended? That was, um, I almost said that was Tispidish is a whore. No, it wasn't. That was a Midsummer Night's Dream. We can truly, does this deserve its place as one of Shakespeare's big ones, Sophie? I don't know why it does, I don't know why it's there, to be honest. Because I, yeah, no, I still like comedy of errors more. Um, and to be honest, I that like... is again a hot take. That um, is, I, I would say that the only reason why most people would not immediately disagree with you is because they have no idea what the comedy of errors is. Yeah, that's true. And also, um, to be, I hate saying this, but I like uh, Titus Andronicus more because at least it knows itself. It is. It's Edgelord 2000, and, it's, and it has Edgelord 2000 on its lapel, and it says, Hi, I'm Edgelord 2000. I will start hurting people now. Um, while Midsummer Night's Dream, like, it builds itself as a comedy, it, and the fairy parts are quite lovely. Um, they say nice stuff. And, but other than that, there's nothing really... Midsummer Nightsy, dreamy about it. It's just, it's messy. It's teenagery. Like for a for something with a such a flouty, loose name as Midsummer Night's Dream, it's all catfights. It's catfights. In the National Theatre Live version I watched, they definitely dove into that. That's how they made it light. They made this. Oh, they're fighting with each other, but it's a very teenager sort of fighting with each other. We don't need to take it seriously. Yeah, and um, I, my understanding... Okay, so you get lots of impressions through osmosis, um, through people like saying things about Shakespearean plays. And um, like Romeo and Juliet, and that scene about Queen Mab, um, and how I took it as just... Mercutio being a super tired boy, just sick of Romeo's antics, as like, oh, you couldn't sleep, fall asleep, little Queen Mab didn't, you know, rub her little flea bottom person onto your eyes. Oh, you poor baby, let's go home now, come on. Like, being, like, the vibe was not what was, what was impressed upon me through osmosis. And Midsummer Night's Dream is very similar. Um, I thought it was all, you know, just it was silliness, but it was fun, mystical, whimsical silliness with the occasional, you know, kissing of a donkey-headed person. What with its and it's not, it's not. I don't like it. It's boring. Okay, it's not boring. It betrayed me. It. I, I will admit that uh, 
my opinion of this play is that, oh, yes, this is the magical one. Oh, this is the one where it has the least connection to reality. It is just shakes. I, I agree with the person from the 1770s that I read previously who said this is Shakespeare soars above the bounds of nature without forsaking sense, or more properly, carries nature along with him beyond her established limits. It is the play where it is just, oh, here is fantasy. Here is the one work of fantasy that no hoity-toity literature professor can ever deny is a great work of literature. I respectfully disagree. So just like Samuel Pepys, you say that I confess I saw some good dancing and some handsome women, which was all my pleasure. You know what? Yes, I would have, if, if there had been handsome women upon the stage, occasionally just breaking the stage's fourth wall and going, hi, sweetie, I'd be like, hi. I remember that in the National Theatre version of it, they really did lean into that where they, they added on more of the love potion thing where Puck was running around the stage with the love potion mistletoe. And so he had all of these attractive young lovers kissing each other. Boy kissing boy, woman kissing woman, one boy kissing the other girl, this sort of thing. And I wish I had been there, but no. And then, and then it ended with, uh, at the play, where Bottom says, at the end of the play, Bottom says, and now, hit it, and then Dizzy Rascal's um, bonkers comes on. That, that sounds like a tonal whiplash. Yes. Yeah, no, so, I... Some, uh, and this is also a one where instead of Titania getting the love potion in her eyes, it's Titania having Puck put the love potion in Oberon's eyes. I'm good with that. <laughs> a Midsummer Night's Dream. And next time we will be doing Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Can't remember the issue numbers, but it's the one that's about A Midsummer Night's Dream and then the other one that's about The Tempest. Uh, I shouldn't be speaking with a throat lodging in my mouth. <laughs> oh my god, be okay. Don't choke, don't die. How about you end the episode for once in your goddamn life, Sophie? Oh, okay. So next time on Shakespeare and Pals, we will be doing Neil Gaiman. Two of his entries have got to do with Shakespeare. Um, Neil Gaiman... Uh, the Sandman, Morpheus, has a boyfriend. Uh, the boyfriend is not Shakespeare, but the boyfriend uh, and uh, Morpheus meet at a pub that so happened to have Shakespeare in it, and uh, Morpheus got interested, and so for two plays from our, our playwright, uh, specifically Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest, and we shall be uh, looking at those two issues, and we shall be talking about that. But see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Pal. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.